Hello, and welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we'll be discussing the Iraq profit margin of the countries and companies that are making the deals with Rob Powell and Ali Al-Safar, Middle East and North Africa analysts for The Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Joining us today are World Affairs Council members from Connecticut, Texas, Arizona, South Carolina, California, and many other states. Welcome. Global IQ is another benefit of your council membership. We'd also like to welcome clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Passport Max, as well as members of Club Corps. You may ask questions throughout the broadcast, so please remember to send them to us through the online form. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Passport Max, a passport and visa expediting company for your personal and corporate travel needs. For more information about both of our sponsors, please visit TexasCapitalBank.com or PassportMax.com. Global IQ would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. And today we have a very special gift for all of our listeners. Rob and Ali have generously provided you with a downloadable copy of the Economist Intelligent Unit's Iraq Country Report. So please be sure that you download it before the end of the broadcast. It is packed with valuable current information that you won't find anywhere else. Rob joined the Country Analysis Department of the Economist Intelligence Unit in May 2001. He is responsible for reports on the Middle East, but also focuses on wider issues, in particular macroeconomic policy and the hydrocarbon sector. Ali is a Middle East and North Africa analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit, responsible for producing country reports for Iraq, Jordan, and Qatar. Previously, he worked in the World Health Organization's Iraq office. Rob joins us today from New York, and I'm afraid Rob is uh, fighting a bug, and, uh, and, and Ali is here uh, from London. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Well, let's get right started. Um, the upcoming parliamentary election where candidates will be elected to fill 325 seats is scheduled for March 7th in a contest that has been described by some as the ultimate stress test of the country's democratic evolution. And it's hard to follow what's happening. Last Saturday on February 20th, it looked like there was going to be a boycott of the elections, and then just yesterday it looked like the uh, boycott had been called off. Um, what's happening, Ali? Well, um, like you just correctly said, uh, one of the main players in the Sunni Arab community, uh, Saleh al-Mutlaq, who is running on a, the same list as the previous uh, appointed Prime Minister, Ayad Alawi, he, um, he was banned as part of a debatification uh, committee decision. Um, allegedly, he was quite close to the bath and he, um, he, he was implicated in trying to uh, propagate their propaganda, apparently. So um, he called for a boycott initially and changed his decision yesterday. Um, in my opinion, it seems that he's realized that his calls to boycott seem to have fallen on deaf ears. Uh, the political arena in Iraq differs a great deal from what it was back in 2005. Um, the, the only three Sunni parties then um, that were involved in the political process were the Islamic Party, the Tawafuq, and Mr. Mutlaq's National Dialogue Front. But today we see that Tawafuq, for example, has split, and its former head, Iraqi Vice President, um, Sadiq al-Hashimi, is running independently. And more significantly, the decision uh, by the leaders of the awakening movements, who are the former insurgents who switched their allegiances towards the state, to join the political process, it really presents a real alternative to the established Sunni parties. So, um, so what we see now is that these popular tribal leaders, for example, Ali Hatim Suleiman of the Anbar Tribal Council, um, he's joined with the Prime Minister Maliki on his slate. Um, so, uh, in effect, I think talk of a Sunni boycott is extremely unlikely. Um, the Sunni Arabs realized that their last boycott in 2005 was largely disastrous for their community. It did not derail the political process, uh, and that went on without their representation. Um, and now they have more of a choice in terms of uh, parties and, 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 and figures to choose from, and I think they're going that way. 
Well, there was also an, uh, another story that was in yesterday's paper, and it just shows that there's a, a lot of political maneuvering going about, and that was that the Iraqi government announced that they would reinstate 20,000 army officers. Um, what's the motivation of, of the timing uh, of, of this announcement? Uh, it would seem that the prime minister is trying to... Um to play a more centrist role. Uh, he has been rebranding himself uh, since early last year in 2008 as well um, to, towards uh, a nationalistic stance rather than a sectarian one, which he, you know, which was what he was largely viewed as before that. So the decision to, to reinstate 20,000 former army officers could be playing to the populist card, although it is a risky strategy because um, it will not, not necessarily be taken very well in, amongst the Shia voters who still represent the core of his, of his constituency. I think they did this or announcement somewhat similar a few years ago, and not that many people really um, accepted the offer to rejoin the the, the military. Um, do you think there'll be a change now? Well, the, um, the situation has moved on a little. Um, conditions are somewhat better than they were, and um, violence was obviously far more serious back in 07 and such like. Um, the militias, of course, had permeated the really a huge element of the Iraqi army, and the police have actually more seriously affected. And as such, people were rather loath to join up in the army because they could potentially get targeted by militias of either side, to be honest. Um, now, at least, um, the situation has improved somewhat in terms of security, though it's still relatively horrific. And as such, it's not quite such a death sentence to join the army. And there is a lot of new equipment coming on stream. I remember um, an old story from actually not long after the U.S. invasion that um, Iraqi tanks were being um, transported through the streets of Baghdad and people were cheering because they were seeing the revival of the Iraqi army again. It is a very um, important symbol um, for Iraq, less um, sectarian than uh, the Republican Guard and such like. And so in that sense, and as Ali kind of inferred, it is a populist measure to, to if you will, orient yourself with the army um, it's not a bad move before an election. You know, that's one of the interesting things. It seems that part of the strategy here for a lot of the uh, principal players is to demonstrate their independence from the United States or, or even from uh, Iran. Uh, Christopher Hill, who, of course, is U.S. ambassador to Iraq, um, suggested that some of the that, that, that Iran has been quite active in sort of stirring the, the pot. Uh, he said recently in a speech in Washington at the U.S. Institute of Peace, there is no question that Iran has shown a very uh, malevolent face in Iraq. It has probed for weaknesses. It has tried to frustrate the U.S. and Iraqi common goals. Um, would, you, would you agree with this assessment? And, and maybe you could elaborate on, on what is the strategy of, of an involvement of Iran? Um, it's a great question. Um, I'm not 100% sure at all times that the Iranians know themselves. Um, the idea of an Iraqi-U.S. common goal is um, slightly misleading, whatever Ambassador Hill may claim. Um, of course, there's so many competing parties, um, and there's so many rivalries within the government itself that a common goal within a government is not necessarily always obvious. Um, concerning Iran, it's naturally got a huge stake in the country. Some of this inevitable. Um, many of the key Iraqi players spent a long period of time in exile in Iran and others in Syria as well. So as such, they had close ties. One of the bigger parties um, in Iraq, uh, the Izki, uh, previously known as Skiri, Supreme Council for uh, Islamic Revolution in Iraq, um, one of that was actually born in Iran and for a while fought on Iran's side in the Iran-Iraq war. And if you think of that war, Iran's concern about Iraq is central. They did not necessarily want any of a repeat of a Saddam Hussein regime. For them, it was a bit of a win-win um, with um, the U.S. kicking out um, Saddam Hussein's regime. They were no great fans themselves, naturally, 
Um, the, the Iran-Iraq War of 1980 to 88 cost something like a million lives. Um, so they wanted to ensure that in no way Iraq could go back to how it was before and that it could not be a threat. So they've been gently exerting influence on various different players. And it's not all um, been a malevolent force, if you will. Um, many say that the um, Iranians played a relatively big part in organizing um, the truce down in the south. Um, some may remember in early 2009, uh, the Prime Minister Maliki um, launched an attack in Basra to clear out the militias. The British had largely failed in the south. And in many ways, the Iranians, when the violence went on for quite a while, the Iranians interceded and some kind of truce was reached. So it's not always been negative, but equally a large amount of weaponry from Iran has found its way um, into the hands of some pretty unsavory characters. And that is possibly what Chris Ambassador Hill is referring to. But it should come as little surprise that Iran has its own aims. This is, after all, its neighborhood. And, of course, what's the role right now of uh, Vice President Dick Cheney's old friend, uh, Ahmed Chalabi? We had a great survivor of Iraqi politics. Um, he sure is. <laughs> but, uh, I think Ali is probably better placed than myself to talk. And, Ali, before, let me just remind people, please do send in your questions. We're standing by and look forward to uh, discussing them. Okay, well, uh, regarding Ahmed Chalabi, and I think this is what uh, what the uh, the ambassador was referring to in terms of Iranian interference, because he leads the uh, Justice and, Accounta uh, and Accountability Commission, uh, which is the commission that was that was actually responsible for debarring initially 511 candidates from running in the elections. So. Uh, he he runs that along with uh, one of his uh, allies called Ali Al-Lami. Um, the decision itself um, should be viewed in the context of, of Ahmed Chalabi and Ali Al-Lami, who are both running on the Iraqi National Alliance list, which is obviously opposed to uh, Prime Minister Maliki and to Ayad Al-Lawi's list. Um, in my mind, it's really quite abundantly clear that this move is part of a wider effort to bring the Basque, the issue of uh, the Basque party, back into the forefront of public discourse in the run-up to the election. Um, like I just said, they're both running on the largely Shia Islamist Iraqi National Alliance list. Uh, it's a deeply sectarian coalition that's lost much of its attractiveness to the Iraqi voter in the last couple of years. Um, most of its composite parties were trounced in last year's provincial elections, um, and it faces really stiff competition from Mr. Maliki's State of the Law Coalition. Now, knowing that they both attract a similar demographic and that they're likely to be competing for what are essentially the same votes, it seems that the INA, <coughs> excuse me, it seems that the INA might have sought to highlight its attractiveness attractiveness to the core Shia constituency um, by highlighting its unshakable anti-Ba'athist stance. They know full well that Mr. Maliki can't um, really take as hardline a stance as, as them because he's been trying to bolster his nationalist credentials. So the outcome is that the INA has managed to bolster its own hardline credentials and Mr. Maliki has suffered, I think. Um, the Alliance's campaign is really uh, an indicator of what strategy they're trying to play. They've got posters up in Baghdad that uh, has a, a picture of Mr. Mutlag and a fellow Sunni politician, Adnan al and under it they have written, uh, withholding your vote will lead to a Ba'athist comeback. So um, the policy, in, in my opinion, is quite a clever one. It's quite Machiavellian, but it's quite clever. Mm -hmm. um, while Mr. Maliki can to some degree point to an improving security situation to, to boost his appeal, uh, and former Prime Minister Ayad Alawi can campaign on the premise of his nationalistic credentials, the INA has very little attraction beyond sectarianism, um, and appreciating that the bloodshed that overwhelmed the country in 2005, 2006, and 2007 has suppressed the appetite for sectarianism, the INA successfully raised an issue that they believe still resonates with a large segment of Iraqi society, and this is a point I don't think many people are making. The issue of the Ba'ath is still an extremely sensitive one, 
to Iraqis, and it's an easy vote winner. Uh, so like yeah. I said, Mr. Maliki does stand to gain the least from the recent uproar, uh, and his muted position has meant that he's not been able to profit from either camp, either those seeking to... Uh, either those seeking protection from the Ba'ath or those seeking a more inclusive political process in Iraq? Well, well that's one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you. How, how strong is uh, uh, Prime Minister Maliki's position, and when might he have to stand for election again? How does that work? I think it's very, diffi- it's very difficult to call how strong his position is personally because um, this, is a, this, this election is a lot more open than the previous ones have been. So I think it's going to be very difficult for anybody to achieve over 25% of the vote. And I think a lot will be decided on the ability of the candidates to um, ally, to, to form alliances. So the horse trading after the election, which will probably be, in, be a very long and, and cumbersome process, will be very interesting. Um, and I think Mr. Maliki is as well-placed as any of the candidates to form alliances. We've seen recently that the Kurds have um, sort of, there's been a rapprochement and a warming in relations that had really uh, frosted over over the last couple of years. And the Kurds are making some sort of a comeback um, and the relationship there seems to be strengthening between them and Maliki. Maliki can also quite realistically pick a few allies from the Iraqi National Alliance and take them away provided he gets a, 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 a substantial vote. So he is quite well placed to, to, to retain his position, in my view. We're going to move to some business questions in a minute, but Barbara asked us, politics are never what they appear in the Middle East. Syria was uh, accused by Maliki for its purported role in bombings around Baghdad last year. Um, was, was Syria involved, she asked. Yeah, it was. Um, it appears um, that the perpetrators did indeed travel over the border from Syria. Um, keep in mind, there's something like well, one and a half million Iraqis living in Syria, so you can't watch every single one of them. Um, and there is a fair number of um, ex-senior senior Ba'ath Party officials um, living in Syria. Whether Syria is actually directly complicit. Um, the feeling is it's pretty unlikely. Um, the reality was, um, as Barbara said, um, Iraqi politics um, never quite as it appears. Um, the reality was was that the bombings, these huge bombings in Baghdad, which hit a number of government targets, it was enormously embarrassing for Prime Minister Maliki who have been talking about ending terrorism once and for all in a matter of months. And so it was a major setback for him. So such he really needed um, a scapegoat. And in that sense, Syria was uh, ideal. So he really played up very, very strongly the, uh, the Syrian connection. Um, but the idea that Syria is playing a role organizing attacks in Iraq, um, I don't think it's an argument that, would, that we ourselves would... Um, necessarily things hold water. Um, you know, looking at some business questions, and I guess the best way to approach Iraq's economy is to talk first about oil. Um, some of us may have forgotten that it was in, I think it was September 1960, that Iraq hosted officials from Venezuela and the three other Gulf countries, and, and, and from that conference, OPEC was born. Um, now, I, Saddam Hussein's Iraq um, had uh, but the third largest in the world reserves of oil, and now it's 13th. Um, 90% or so of Iraq's income comes from oil revenues, and I've read some pretty aggressive targets. Uh, could one of you really elaborate on uh, what's happening in the oil industry? It was, um, it's enormously exciting, to be honest. Um, I don't think there's really been anything like this in modern times. Um, Iraq has the most extraordinary oil potential. Theoretically, it has the third uh, largest oil reserves in the world. <coughs> Sorry about that, excuse me. But the reality is it's woefully underexplored, and its oil reserves could easily be double what are quoted. And what is quoted is 115 billion barrels of oil. So this is not small potatoes. Um, mm-hmm. 
Now what's happened is Iraq for a number of years really made a bit of a pig's ear um, of developing its oil potential in contrast to the Iraqi Kurds in the north who did a pretty good job of indeed building from scratch an oil sector. Iraq with all its potential didn't sign a single actual deal until 2007-2008. However recently we saw a number of deals with really the big, big players, be it ExxonMobil, uh, BP, Occidental over here, and of course the Chinese and Total, and taken together these oil fields could be providing anything up to another, another 10 million barrels a day of oil. Um, to give you some idea of what that means, it means the country will be producing around 12 million barrels a day, which is around 3 million more than Saudi Arabia is producing at the moment. Although Saudi Arabian production, I must point out, is restrained because of OPEC quota cuts. So Saudi Arabia's actual capacity is about 12.5 million. And you could theoretically, and it is theoretical, see Iraqi oil production reaching Saudi levels. Um, because the reality is very, very different. Um, you can believe that the oil companies are willing to do this because the contracts are signed and big, big, big money is going to be flowing in up to maybe $100 billion is going to be going into Iraq from these oil companies. Um, but the reality is, is it's one heck of a bottleneck. Um, ports, uh, roads, electricity, grid, water, gas, all are lacking. And in order, of course, to, to develop these fields will require hundreds of, drill, um, hundreds of drills, uh, hundreds of wells, um, require enormous movements of manpower, large amounts of construction, so it's simply not going to be possible to do it within the time frames that are envisaged. The time frames being, what, around 2016, 2017, Iraq could be up to 12 million barrels a day. We don't think that's realistic. But even 6 million barrels a day, which does look relatively realistic, even that would have a dramatic effect on the world oil market. What is the production now? Our production is a little under 2.5 million. And at the height, it was what, uh, under Saddam Hussein? Yeah, it was in the 1970s. I think it, it peaked about 3.8 million barrels a day in the late 1970s. But they were averaging in, in the 70s about 3.5 million, which is, broadly speaking, actually what Iran produces now. So how does this play, though, with OPEC quotas? I mean, it would just seem like it would create um, great problems. And, and, and is Iraq part of the OPEC quotas now? Well, it's going to blow a giant hole in, in the whole um, OPEC production Story. Of course, they're a cartel, and this could be a major issue for, for them. Because Iraq is in OPEC, as you say, it's one of the founder members, but it's not actually been required to, um, to fulfill any actual quota since sanctions kicked in. Um, so in that sense, it's outside their restrictions. Um, there's a story that OPEC seems to shuffle around a lot, and there's a lot of shrugging going on, in part because you're not going to really see... Um, any dramatic effect for at least another five years. But if you go back to what Iraq's OPEC quota should roughly be, and these things actually change, but you think it would be around three and a half to four million barrels, that would be their limit before OPEC begins to get really rather uncomfortable. Um, at that point, you can see OPEC demanding that Iraq reigns in its oil production growth. Um, Iraq which was relatively quiet on the subject for a while, the oil minister, um, Shahistani, has, has begun to discuss this, and probably the most interesting development was they rewrote the contracts. They added a few clauses and such like. Um, now these contracts were signed pretty recently, but you get the impression that someone at OPEC had a word in Iraq government here, and they've rewritten it so the Iraqi government can now intervene and ask the, um, in fact, demand the Western and Eastern oil companies to rein in their production. So if they want to cut oil production, if the government wants to cut oil production, the oil companies have to comply. And so it appears they're beginning to at least lay the basis for a return to OPEC. But it's about five years down the line before this becomes a big issue. I suspect we'll have some more questions on, on oil, and I want to be sure to get to those. But Doug asks, can you provide some information on the non-oil exports from Iraq? Is there any growth expected in the next three to five years? Um, it's pretty trivial, it's, the truth be told. <laughs> it's a great opportunity for an importer, to be honest. Um, Iraqi industry is in a terrible state. Um, 
a decade of sanctions um, and then a decade of war is going to do that to you um, because the economy was run along Baathist principles, this is a very kind of Arab socialist ideology and socialism doesn't typically um, sit comfortably with high productivity. Um, so the companies themselves are in a pretty rotten state. Um, some areas of the north um, have some pretty interesting agricultural um, story because the north of the country, country is actually rich with water and they have a bit of marble. Um, the talk of a Coca-Cola factory actually setting up um, as a cement factory is set up. So you're beginning to see um, companies moving in, but it's really for the Iraqi market. Iraq itself isn't particularly competitive in anything other than oil. Also, just to add to that, I think um, in terms of what's being built right now, I think uh, a South uh, Korean company signed a $3.2 billion contract uh, today, or, or, or there was an agreement today on um, building uh, factories in, in the South, in Basra. And um, uh, this, you know, this is uh, a prelude to, to the uh, steel and uh, iron um, uh, smelter they, they, they had agreed on uh, earlier in the month. Well, that's so, one of the questions that is sort of related that just came in. Where does China stand, and is it as aggressive in Iraq making deals as it uh, is in South America or Africa? Um, in a word, yes. Um, the first, I mentioned that they didn't get any oil deals signed until 2007, 2008. The first one was with a Chinese oil company. Um, it was the China National Petroleum Corporation. And this was for the al Assad field, which is not actually particularly large in Iraqi terms, but it's noticeable that it went to the Chinese. The Chinese have an advantage politically. The perception helpful to them. Um, they don't have a direct stake in um, that country's politics and in its history. So there's a little less baggage than the Americans and the British would have, for instance. So that's been key movers here. The recent um, bid rounds for some of the really giant oil fields, um, Romela is one. Again, the Chinese got a share of that. Romela will be producing customer up to 2.5 million barrels a day just itself. Um, which is astonishing. That's what they produce now. So effectively one field with double Iraqi production. Um, the Chinese have a stake in there. They took another stake in the Hanfire field, which is not quite as large. But again, they were players there. So they'd be, they'd be um, actively involved in three oil fields. And they also, through another Chinese company called Sinopec, have been in Iraqi Kurdistan, which was quite an interesting move, actually. Um, Sinopec... Um, acquired a Swedish company called Adax, um, but they clearly are interested in um, all areas of the country. They're, they're fascinated by the country's oil potential, really across the board, um, so they have feet in both camps. Whether that's sustainable, because as many or may, may or may not be aware, but the Iraqi Kurds and the government in Baghdad have some differences on the oil sector, and whether they can actually be in both camps is another story, but it's interesting that CNPC has been operating in Iraq proper, and Sinopec, another Chinese company, are operating in Iraqi Kurdistan. So they haven't overlapped in terms of one company in both areas. But Iraq, and so to ask your question anyway, China has been aggressive. It's been a key player and an early mover in Iraq. You know, one of the things that um, we've, we've seen at several of the World Affairs Councils around the United States is that the Iraqi ambassador has visited and has given speeches and has really tried to encourage U.S. companies to um, make their presence known and invest. Um, is, is it safe? And, and, and really, what about the uh, um, regulations for a U.S. company to conduct business? Uh, do they need to have an Iraqi partner? Um, how do you how do you set up a, a trade office? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I met him. Um, I met him at an event in New York a little while ago, and he yeah, he's a pretty impressive character. I thought um, it's a tough place to do business. Um, it's according to Transparency International. It's the third most corrupt country um, in the world. Um, in terms of security, okay, it's a lot better. Some areas of the country are pretty quiet. Kurdistan in the north is really very quiet. Um, 
But either way, you're going to be spending a heck of a lot more on security than you would if you're operating in France. You know, it's, it's going to be it's going to be an issue, and you're going to have to hire a private security firm. Um, in terms of regulation, it's a bit of a nightmare. Um, theoretically, you can have 100% ownership of a project. They have an investment law that was passed in 2006, but to really get the wheels of bureaucracy turning, you really need a local partner. Um, and they, therefore, will have some kind of leverage on someone in the government, and they can then hopefully get your trade office open. Um, and that is the best way to do it, actually, is to open up an office in Baghdad. It's just very, very slow and cumbersome process. Form filling is a bit of a mare, and you do, have to, you do generally have to have someone there to poke the appropriate official. Um, so it's a very rather slow and painful process, and of course, you need a good Iraqi partner, and that's not very easy. And a lot of the best businessmen have gone, a lot are based in the UAE, um, based in Jordan, based elsewhere. So it's difficult to get the right partner, and even then, when you set up, the labor law is, is anachronistic. Um, it comes from 1987, uh, rooted in this kind of Baathist socialist ideology, filled with all kinds of really bizarre fringe benefits. If you, if you set up a business in Iraq, you're going to have to provide a cafeteria, showers, you must provide transport to and from work, and all kinds of privileges that you wouldn't dream of in the U.S. Mm. Um, talk of overhauling that labor law, but it hasn't actually happened. Something's been written, but it's been bouncing around for the last two or three years. Um, so it's a tough place to do business, but of course, you always have that appeal if you're one of the first in, and there's a heck of a lot of money to be made, but it has to be, has to be done right. Can you give some examples of, of U.S. companies that are there and have, and have been successful? Um, Bechtel went in there and didn't have an enormous um, amount of success, but there have been a few companies operating in um, Kurdistan. I mentioned uh, Coca-Cola for one. Uh, there's been an Italian company that's been contracted. We'll see if that happens, but they've been contracted to provide um, a lot of work down in um, down in uh, to build a new port down in the south. Um, I forget the precise company, but there was a, a U.S. telecoms provider worked with a Kurdish company called KAR, and they helped rebuild a lot. Of, um, in fact, built from scratch a lot of the multi-fiber fiber optic network around Baghdad. Um, some companies have done it, but it's, it's really early days. A lot of those who did work off the work in partnership, you know, with the USAID, USAID, um, now USAID is obviously stepping back, so they now have to go directly to the government. And so in many cases, you're really starting from scratch here. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough place to enter, um, for sure. You know, Rob, you touched on corruption. Uh, Ali, I, I read in, 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 in your uh, special report about this incredible situation where Iraq spent some $85 million on fake bomb detectors. What's the story there? Well, that's right. So, I mean, it was a British company that had sold uh, the Ministry of uh, Defense and the Interior Ministry specifically um, bomb detectors that turned out to be little more than magic ones. Um, they went for, I think, £46,000 each, and they cost something like £6 to make. Um, now, there has been an investigation um, that was launched here, and it proved that the ones were ridiculous and did not work. The Iraqi government was furious and launched its own investigation, and two days ago um, maintained that it would keep half of them in operation because half of them worked. Um, I don't know how uh, they managed to, to come to that conclusion, but they did. Um, it's scandalous, uh, and it really could wreck the chances of the interior minister who's running now on the, uh, for, for the uh, national elections, and it could wreck his chances of, uh, of any sort of popular vote. Yeah, well, um, and as you wrote, it's scandalous, and also probably some people died because of it. Yeah, it would, it would be kind of vaguely hilarious if it wasn't so damn serious. Um, the bomb detectors basically use dousing. I don't know if you're familiar with this idea. Um, you get a few crusty types in Britain do it, um, where you walk around with two sticks, and if it goes over an area of water, then the two sticks move closer together. Um, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> pretty weird stuff. 
and you know it has no scientific basis. Some people swear by it, of course. Um, but the idea that you'd use this as a bomb detector and then charge $85 million for the contract is absurd. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, one, it's horrific, and the people will have died, and the chances are, unfortunately, that will be the case. And it's scandalous that the Iraqi government is still trying to defend them. It's, it's, they're clearly so embarrassed they can't admit what's in front of their face, but it's, um, it's an astonishing story, really. Hmm. Um, let me go back to a political question because uh, retired Colonel Thomas uh, Tutt asks, and I think we touched on some of it, but he said, how are regional actors like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Syria influencing the different parties or exploiting existing sectarian divides? I think we covered Iran and, and Syria, but I don't, I don't think we really did, did talk much about Saudi Arabia. Uh, yeah, the, um, it's interesting to see Ayad Alawi there um, in Saudi Arabia recently, but I think Ali, you wrote about that. I'm, I'm sorry, could you repeat that, Rob? Um, Ayad Alawi was in um, Saudi yeah. Arabia, the former PM. That's right. I mean, uh, Ayad Alawi has been conducting a tour of the region, and he's been meeting with um, politicians and kings and emirs that the prime minister himself has not been able to meet. Um, so he was recently in Saudi Arabia and met the king there. Today he was in Turkey and met the president, the prime minister, and the foreign minister. So... Um, the, uh, the, the Iraqi government has accused um, this uh, uh, Saudi Arabia specifically, really, um, of aiding Ayad Alawi in his campaign uh, in the election. But uh, it really goes to show um, just what people would do to undermine, I think, Maliki at, at the present moment. Um, I think it goes a long way to show that the Prime Minister can't get a meeting with certain people and that this person who's running in the election independently uh, can. So I think there is an influence and I think there is a backing for Alawi um, over, over uh, Maliki, who's seen as perhaps more sectarian. Um. One of, one of our listeners, uh, Ranj, says, in light of the fines imposed on Iraq's own players in the market, what is the state of the telecommunications market in Iraq, and is the market open to uh, foreign investors? Um, yeah, there's some talk of, um, there's some talk of um, having another license, licensing round. Um, Atisalat, who um, up in the UAE, they've been um, discussing the idea of entering the market. Um, in a sense, the telecoms market has been one of the success stories. Um, if you look at fiscal revenue, just about the only um, companies that pay their taxes are the telecoms companies. Um, and in large part, it's because mobile phones have become enormously popular. Um, now, Zane, to pick out a few key players, um, the Kuwaiti company, Zane, ended up with a very large share of the market after... Um, some bidding was done in 2009. It was an auction. It accrued the government over $2 billion. That gives you some idea of how many companies feel there's pretty good potential there. Um, QTEL has a partner in um, northern Iraq, Kurdistan, um, called Korak. So QTEL, a category company. So you can see it's kind of a regional um, interest rather than really further afield. And they've um, made some pretty good money out there. But a few companies have had their problems, um, um, and I think as the person providing the question rightly highlighted, um, the biggest issue has been these fines that are imposed. The, um, the companies involved haven't actually met their performance targets, haven't rolled out their networks sufficiently. Um, there is, however, there is a political, um, as always, some political interference has gone on. For instance, if you've been to Iraqi Kurdistan, it's very bizarre. You need, everyone has two phone numbers in Iraqi Kurdistan, um, one with um, Korak and another one, I believe they're called AsiaCell. Um, another two different companies operate there, and one works in one area and one works in another. One of the companies is close to the Talibanis, who are a big deal in Sulaymaniyah, in sort of the eastern side of Kurdistan. One company is owned by the Barzanis, who are another huge, hugely powerful political family. And they operate really in the west of the country. And the two don't mix. You have to have two mobile phones with two networks. Um, so basically the politicians can make rather a large amount of cash. So it's 
it's a relatively difficult place to do business, but it is a fast-growing market with enormous popularity, and it will be interesting to see if any new products begin to um, grow in popularity. So you to see banking over mobile phones and such like. hasn't quite arrived in Iraq yet, but, um, but it might. And as I said, really, the thing probably to keep an eye on is if they do offer another mobile phone license and to see which kind of players move in. The recent fines imposed on the present um, operators may prove a deterrent for some, but uh, certainly there's been a lot, a lot of interest in previous years and some successes. We have about another 20 minutes, and I have lots of questions here, but if you have some, please do send them in to us. And uh, not surprisingly, a lot of our listeners are in, in business, and they're asking more questions about uh, the education in Iraq and really what is sort of the, the philosophy and, and, and uh, of, of young Iraqis. In fact, Keith says, do young Iraqis, college students, young professionals, are they open to rebuilding a relationship of trust with the United States as a country? Country, and uh, what about uh, with Americans as uh, as employers? Interesting. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, my voice is about to implode on me. Do you want to um, take this one, Ali? Yeah, sure. Um, it would be very difficult to, to to give a definitive answer, but Iraqis, by and large. Uh, they, uh, going back to the mobile phones, for example, they, will, they just want to catch up with what they've missed, I think. There's a feeling that under Saddam Hussein, the whole world progressed and they didn't. So, for example, now there's 20 million mobile phones in Iraq, and that was, you know, there was none in the time of Saddam Hussein. I think that really reflects this, this mentality that Iraqis now are willing to do whatever it takes to just live a normal life. Um, so I think they realize that uh, opening up the business, they can just look across the Gulf and see that in, uh, in Dubai and in, in Abu Dhabi what it's done for them. 20, 30 years ago, these places were desert cities, um, and now they've overtaken Iraq. Uh, so I think there is a, a will, uh, by and large, to open up and do whatever it takes to bring normality into their lives. So whether that means uh, uh, being employed by Americans or uh, letting American companies uh, have a stake in, in Iraqi business, uh, I, think, I think they will be open to it as long as they can see that it's compounding their lives, uh, that it's benefiting their lives. Um, I think that's about it, yeah. Yeah. But Ali, you know, looking at the neighborhood, and as we've said, and as, as we all know, it's extremely complex, but... The United States recently said that we were going to, again, have an ambassador in Damascus. Um, how is all this playing, say, regionally um, to open Iraq more directly to Western markets? Do we engage more with Damascus on regional development? Uh, this is something that, uh, again, one of our listeners, Tom, is, is, is inquiring about. So the question is whether the improved relations with Syria will improve uh, the market in Iraq. Exactly, yeah. I think it couldn't hurt. I'm not sure whether the direct impact is going to be a particularly strong one, but I think what the region needs is stability, and stability is what will bring companies in. So if there are moves to kind of allay any fears uh, of... Uh, uh, a, a Syrian-American um, friction, then it can only bode well for the region and, uh, as a whole. Um, the, the largest, uh, I think, player in the region in terms of instability isn't so much Syria, in my opinion, it's Iran. Mm -hmm. So uh, unless things are done on the Iranian front to calm things down, maybe, uh, maybe it won't, there won't be the stability um, required to bring in the business that we all want to see go there. And, you know, it, it all gets back to, I think, to, to security, and especially for U.S. and other foreign companies that are thinking about sending employees there or have a, a, having a larger presence. And it seems like you're still, although maybe our media is not focusing on it because we seem to be now focusing mostly on Afghanistan, but there's been a number of attacks, it seems, all, all throughout the country. And... Um, even, uh, I guess, in uh, Mosul, um, a, a lot of uh, maybe sectarian attacks uh, on, on Christians. 
Right, but but Jim, um, I think you're right to say that uh, the coverage has decreased and it's, it's focusing more on Afghanistan now, but I think there's also a reason beyond that, and that is, I think Iraq is quite a different place to what it was just a few years ago, and it seems that the, the, the media uh, focuses on the violence there, and it, uh, there's a lot less going on in terms of the attacks that would uh, generate a media response. Um, total civilian casualties in 2009 were less than half the 2008 levels, and they're far below what they were in 2006 and 2007. Now, if there is room for optimism, it's only because we've seen how far Iraq has come in the last two years. There's no reason to believe that this momentum will not carry on forward. Um, Extrajudicial executions, and they're generally taken to be a measure of the security situation in terms of sectarian, uh, sectarian violence. Um, now, they've, they've fallen um, a great deal. Uh, I, I think I, I read a statistic somewhere saying that they'd fallen by uh, 91% uh, in 2009 and 2010 compared to the years previous. So while it is obviously still risky over there and there is obvious dangers um, to conducting business and going there and life is far from being normal, there is a, a, a sense that things are improving. Now, if there is... Uh, in the lead-up to the election, more bombings, uh, a spike in violence, and this can carry on forward beyond the election if there's a vacuum and there's prolonged negotiations, like most people are predicting, um, and that vacuum leads to instability and, uh, and security breaches. I think those will be relatively short-term, and uh, I, I do think that there will be sudden spikes in violence sometimes, but uh, by and large, the downward pattern will continue. And having said that, do you believe then that the target that the Obama administration has set for the uh, withdrawal of troops will be met? Um, it's not really, um, excuse me, it's not really a target. It's um, an obligation. Um, they've, they've signed the, um, a treaty to this effect, so they have to do it. Um, so it will be met in that sense to get down to around 50,000, 40,000 troops um, by uh, the middle of this year all out by end 2011. I think it will happen. Um, the question is, is how will it look when the U.S. troops are gone? Um, it would look rather um, unfortunate if U.S. troops were leaving at a time, let's say, if violence was rising, it would almost look like the U.S. was abandoning its responsibilities. In that sense, it would um, have political implications for Barack Obama, but you wouldn't necessarily expect him to reverse that decision. The reality is the U.S. military is hugely stretched. Um, people seem to think it can do almost infinite things everywhere, and of course this is not true. They have a, still a peacetime um, army being asked to really undertake a full, full-scale warfare um, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere. They're hugely stretched. It's clear President Obama wants to concentrate on Afghanistan, which was mentioned. So really it's a necessity. Um, the military chiefs want to get out of there so they can focus what resources they have on Afghanistan. So as I said, they will be leaving. Um, it will be interesting, though, to see what the security picture is like at the time. Um, but there's all kinds of um, momentum behind it. In America, and of course, in Iraq itself, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Maliki, um, has garnered considerable popularity by being the, the chap that got the Americans out. Um, so it's a pretty good political card for him too. Um, but we'll see who's Prime Minister at in 2011. May not necessarily be him, of course. Right. Good. Um, we have two questions that are linked somewhat. Chris says, or asks, does Iraqi agricultural feed its population or is Iraq a net importer of food to feed its population? And then related, Wayne asks, what is your assessment of Iraq's potential to develop its agricultural sector to be a supplier of food to the region? Well, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a net importer, big time. Um, but it does, it does produce a lot of, um, Ali might know more of this than I do, but a lot of dates, olives, and the north, I said, is awfully green, you know, it's a, land of the two rivers, Euphrates and the Tigris, so they do have a bit of water that less dry. On the other hand, though, they have had a drought for the last few years, 
um, which is hate considerably wheat production and such like. Um, so they are pretty heavily reliant on imports, but they do have some potentialists. Um, some people of the agricultural ministry, both in Baghdad and in the north, are interested in the idea of not necessarily making Iraq the breadbasket of the region, but certainly exporting to other countries um, and using Iraq as the base. Um, so it does have some potential in that regard. It's not all dry and arid, um, but it's still got some way to go. Um, technology as such um, that is, is usually unproductive at the moment. Um, and in a sense, you know, it's all a hangover of a decade of sanctions and then what, another six, seven years of horrific instability. There's just been very little money going on to the basics, you know, your harvesters, your... Um, and irrigation and such like, and the drought has not helped, um, but has some potential in that regard, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom asks, um, the Russians used to have a privileged position, and he puts in parentheses, read corruption with the Iraqi National Oil Company. Okay. Ali, what is the current role of Stroytrensgas or some of the other Russian players in Iraq? Well, um, I believe that they, they have uh, actually signed a contract for um, they're, they're part of the consortia that won some of the contracts in the last bidding rounds. Um, so I think they are trying to uh, garner some sort of a relationship there. Uh, I don't know how that will play in the long term because I don't think there is any... Uh, well, the Prime Minister stated there won't be any more bidding rounds beyond uh, what we saw last year. So I think there has been a traditional uh, relationship with, uh, with, with Russia and between Russia and Iraq. But um, I don't think they've been as successful as the Chinese say um, uh, in, 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 in getting in um, on, the, uh, on what, is, what is to be had. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. Yeah, they haven't done as well as the Chinese. Um, and that privileged position really no longer applies. Um, they want a few um, contracts to redevelop a few electricity power stations. Um, including when things are really bad. I recall one company actually had to, one Russian company had to take all its staff um, out of the country because things really got very hairy for a while there. Um, and as Ali says, they, they did win, um, I think it was the West Kerner Field, um, one of the West Kerner Field, yeah, West Kerner too. Um, but they had to pay an astonishingly low price well, for the oil company effectively and effectively an enormously high price to get that field. So they've not, they've not had the same success as the Chinese. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, one thing that I, I read, I think, in one of your, probably in The Economist, was just how tough the oil minister is in his negotiations. Yeah, he's, um, he's quite a character, um, Shahristani. He loved to be a complete, you know, to not miss my words, he was a complete disaster um, for a while. He couldn't really get anything agreed and anything signed because he... What's yeah, his background? Hard line. And he wasn't prison for a while under Saddam. Um, he wouldn't play ball with um, any of the nuclear program. He had some kind of an engineering background in that sense. Um, he's Shia, but not a part of any party viewed as independent. He was just part of the Shia list, um, which was a much more amorphous, wider group. So he's not necessarily in hoc to any particular individual, but he played hard ball, and the reality is he really could not get any kind of popular support um, for any deal with a Western oil company unless it looked like Iraq was going to really get the vast bulk of the money. And they may be getting something like 95% of the revenue from these oil deals, so they've done rather well. Um, it was fascinating, really. The first oil round was widely seen as a disaster. Only one contract was signed. But I have to say, not to blow our trumpet here, but we thought actually it went rather well because BP really broke with the consensus and took what was exceptionally harsh terms, $2 a barrel, and they signed on the dotted line. And once they were in, really everyone had to follow suit. And um, in the end, it looks like Shakhistani, the oil minister's long game, had really paid off. And sorry, if I may just come in as well. Um, Shahristani, you asked about his background. He's a nuclear physicist, and he was imprisoned and put in um, solitary confinement for ten years. So if um, if he's tough, I think we know just how tough he is. But I was speaking to uh, an oil executive yesterday, and uh, he was in the, uh, involved in the direct negotiations with Shahristani last year. 
And he says, while he is tough, he's extremely capable. And I think um, from an Iraqi perspective, he has uh, negotiated a very good deal for them. Um, so tough but fair, I think, is, is the way to is the way to, to is the bottom line with Shahrastani. I think. Ali, you, you focus on this more than probably any, anybody else. As we begin to draw to a close, bring us up to date, really, where we stand or on the oil law and the relation uh, between the, the federal government and and and, Kirk, and Kurdistan. Okay, well, um, yeah, it's quite interesting with the oil law. Um, To to be frank, I don't think that we're anywhere near seeing an oil law. I think it's going to be at least a year away um, because it's such an important decision. It will certainly not be taken before the election. um, And I'm quite pessimistic in terms of um, how long it will take to have a fully functioning government next year. So it will take quite a while for that to happen, um, perhaps three or four months. Um, and assuming that the next government shows a will to pass the legislation, um, I, I think it will be at least uh, late uh, 2010, early 2011, before we can see any sort of an oil deal reached. And that's a real pity, especially when considering that the Kurds have recently come out in favor of an oil law. Um, this was just two days ago. So if they had come out with this a couple of months ago, I think by now we would have had a much more tangible uh, document there. Um, But having said that, the the oil ministry kind of argues quite convincingly that the absence of an oil law uh, has no real bearing on the the deals that were signed last year Um, and that the ratification by the cabinet are legal and that's based on the constitutional powers entrusted to the executive. Um, so I think the status of the oil agreements are, are further strengthened by the fact that uh, they were awarded in a highly transparent and competitive manner um, and, resulted, uh, and resulted in deals that were quite widely accept, uh, accepted to be beneficial to the Iraqi people. Um, and as uh, Rob just mentioned, it, you know, it takes about 95 to 98% of the cash flow uh, the Iraqi government will take. So I think that's all, uh, that all strengthens the... Um, the position of last year's bidding round, uh, despite there not being an oil law. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you. We've covered quite a bit, and before we um, close, I, I, this is the first time that we've had the opportunity to speak with uh, formerly the Economist Intelligence Unit. Uh, um, you know, in, in the past, we've talked with some of your editors and, and journalists around the world. Uh, tell us more about how the unit functions, how often you produce your updates. I, I have to say that um, reading it, I really do think it's one of the most comprehensive country reports. Uh, certainly goes way beyond, say, what I often look at, the background notes at the State Department or the CIA background uh, fact books. I mean, it's just phenomenal, the information. Um, t- t- tell me about how you produce this. Well, thanks very much indeed, Jim. The check's in the post. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> um, I think because I've worked for the EIU for you know, getting on for a decade, um, I should probably answer this. Um, the Economist Intelligence Unit, and we are typically asked, how are we related to the magazine? Well, the Economist Intelligence Unit is more as a sister company to the magazine. We're all part of the same group, um, but we offer we operate relatively independent. We are mm-hmm. effectively the business-to-business arm. We provide um, market intelligence, industry intelligence, country intelligence, on all the countries in the world. Um, we've produced a lot of data, a lot of forecasts going forward to five, and in some cases, five, 30 years. Um, and equally, we do, and increasingly in demand now, a lot of risk-based um, product, products, be it um, sovereign risk, the kind of areas that would concern bond traders, all the way through to operating risk. Um, so let's say companies looking to invest in Iraq, so including your legal and um, infrastructure and such like, um, so it's very much um, a business on. It's a little drier, I admit, than the articles in the magazine. Um, but we operate in a slightly different sphere. So the companies uh, take you on retainer, or do they subscribe to all of the countries in the world, or can they say, I just want to get the updates on Iraq? No, they can, you can choose your country. We have subscription products, of which probably the country report is the best known, and that's what you have up on your website at the moment. 
and say to have subscribe always also do bespoke or custom reports so people can ask about maybe a specific sector. Let's say someone asked about agriculture, maybe agriculture in Iraq specifically, and we could produce a very long report on the particular opportunities in that section. So it can be custom, it can be subscription. Well, I really do want to encourage all of our listeners to download, uh, download today's country report on Iraq. It is free just today for our listeners, and uh, it's available on the link uh, in our auditorium on today's Global IQ uh, website. Uh, gentlemen, um, thank you so much for spending uh, part of your day with, with us. Rob, uh, special thanks to you, and I hope you'll go get some uh, hot tea and, and, and rest for the rest of the day and the weekend. You were very nice to come out when, you're, when you weren't feeling well. Well, and, and Ali, thanks so much for fighting the time zone and, and calling in from, from from London. We really appreciate uh, your involvement today. Thank you. My pleasure. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Passport Max. Stay tuned for more information from your World Affairs Councils regarding our next audiocast, which will focus on the rise of the East and what it means for the West. And remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.